what one does for a living uh, is part of uh, one's personal fulfillment. Uh, a, a very smart and successful uh, businessman I knew from New Orleans once told me, you got to show up. Excellence, professionalism, innovation, and collegiality. These are the values the Sam M. Walton College of Business explores in education, business, and the lives of people we meet every day. I'm Matt Waller, Dean of the Walton College, and welcome to the Be Epic Podcast. I have with me today Kurt Bradbury, Chief Operating Officer of Stevens, Inc. He's also a director of Stevens, Inc. Kurt is... Um, an alum of the Walton College. He got his undergraduate degree in finance here and a master's in economics. But most importantly, and congratulations, Kurt, on being inducted into the Arkansas Business Hall of Fame. Kurt will be at our event, our big annual event in Little Rock in February to be inducted into the Arkansas Business Hall of Fame, which is quite a remarkable group of people to join. We started this in 1999, and but people that are inducted into this include people like William Dillard, uh, Jack Stevens, Sam Walton, Joe Ford, Don Tyson, J.B. Hunt, many, many uh, amazing leaders. And of course, uh, fairly recently, 2019, we had Warren Stevens inducted and it just occurred to me, Kurt, you may be, this. Stevens may have more people in the Arkansas Business Hall of Fame than any company because Jack Stevens, Warren Stevens, and now you. Well, that's quite an honor for our firm, if that's, uh, if that's correct. And it is in any event. If, if, uh, um, I, I, I think it is. I think that's right. And it is. It's, uh, it's a great group. And congratulations on, on that induction. And, and to your Tremendous uh, accomplishments in business. Thank you, Matt. You've been a supporter of mine uh, for a long time now, and uh, I've been a supporter of yours. Uh, yes. For quite a while now, and it's been a pleasure to work with you, and um, and certainly I look forward to working through all the uh, all the Arkansas Business Hall of Fame um, preparation with you. Well, you know, Kurt, you are a man who really notes and celebrates the accomplishments of mankind in business because it's a great way to advance society. Business advances society in so many ways. And I know in your career, one of the, you know, you've done a number of things that have really elevated your stature in business, but um, I'd love to hear, of course, I'm familiar with the Worthen story Um, We could talk about that, but you were a young man when all of a sudden you were plopped in the middle of uh, Worthen Bank and asked to lead it. Would you mind talking a little bit about that? You know, the preface to all of that really is that uh, that happened, all of that happened when I'd been with Stevens for 13 years, now 50, Uh, and I had worked closely with uh, Jack Stevens, who was... uh, ahead of his time on many, uh, many issues with respect to investments, particularly. And he felt that uh, there was a, at that time, there was a interstate banking uh, prohibition. In other words, banks couldn't operate across state lines. And he felt like that would ultimately be repealed. And at that time, 
you know, let's say the early 70s, it was, uh, that was a heresy almost to say that, you know, a bank could operate across state lines. So he began taking 4.9% positions in a variety of regional banks um, throughout the South and Southeast, basically. <clears throat> and uh, people would ask him what his theory was uh, about owning these banks. And uh, he would say, well, uh, you know, the McFadden Act, which restricted interstate uh, banking, uh, will, will have to be repealed at some point. And I don't know what's going to happen, he would say, but at least uh, when it happens, our friends will know each other, meaning the CEOs of all these banks. And uh, he thought that that would be a, a, a good thing. So he, when I first started here, he needed somebody to help him uh, uh, monitor the financial data in those banks and their performance. And uh, colleagues in the corporate finance department when I first came in thought that sounded a little a little like grunt work. And so uh, it fell to me, the newest, the newest guy, in, probably in uh, 73 or 74. And so I began to work with Jack uh, on his uh, investments in all these banks. And, um, you know, there were some really... Uh, uh, st there were some stars in that uh, cadre of banks that we that we had investments in. Hugh McCall at, at North Carolina National Bank, now Bank of America, and Hootie Johnson at Bankers Trust of South Carolina. Several of the uh, better performers in Texas, uh, union planners in Memphis, uh, great bankers running um, a lot of these banks. So, actually, at a very young age, I got to know. A lot of these bankers so and and got to watch uh, them operate and run their banks so when Worthen had its uh, problems and Jack and and Stevens family owned 15% uh, of it um, and it was a passive investment and when, when it had trouble uh, he naturally and the family was naturally uh, solicited to recapitalize it because of the financial strength and their, in, their prior interest in it. And basically, uh, he said that he would, but part of the deal would be that I would go to Worthen as an officer. And um, that happened basically overnight. Uh, and in other words, I went home and told my wife, uh, who, who knew nothing about what I was what I'm getting ready to do, uh, you know, that I left Stevens and gone to Worthen. So uh, I think people were surprised about the choice, um, but but in fact, I had uh, worked with Jack on, on banks and banking for a long time. I knew how he felt about the management of the banks. I knew uh, philosophies of his about, about the banking business. And so it was sort of a natural uh, a natural reaction for him to want me to be involved in the Worthen situation. Turning around uh, a bank like that yeah. or any organization is very difficult. Yeah, it is. And how old were you at the time? I was 30, 35 the, the day I walked in there. Yeah, so that's, uh, that's a lot of responsibility for a tur turnaround at the age of 35. How did you... Think about managing that turnaround, leading that turnaround. Well, 
uh, with all due respect to everybody involved on the other side, uh, it uh, was clear to me that the bank needed a, a fairly radical change in its culture. Uh, and many banks at that time did. Uh, for example, um, the cost structure of the bank was way too high. And, um, and that, you know, that was more of a cultural thing than it was a failure of, of uh, operations. It was just an attitude. And so um, one of the first things we began to do was uh, um, cut costs. And uh, of course, we had the capital issues uh, from the uh, huge and, and sort of uh, precipitous loss of, of capital. And we had to start about raising uh, capital to, uh, to put the balance sheet back in shape. And, and then we had to uh, change the uh, culture on lending. Uh, and so I think to me, it, it was, and again, as I say, all due respect to the people who were there at the time, uh, I just came in with a different point of view. Uh, and so the, I think the most difficult thing you, is to persist in that point of view. Change is difficult. People, people, uh, resist change when, you know, big down inside, they really know that they really shouldn't resist it. And, and, um, but, but change is difficult to, to manage. And, and so, um, you know, I was insisting on a change of the culture and it was, um, it, it, I must say to do that, it takes a good bit of, um, stubbornness, uh, on, on the change agents part. Uh, because what happens is the resistance says, basically takes the form of, well, you're wrong about this. And in my case, and you don't know anything about banking. And the, re and the, the response to that is, well, I might be wrong, but we got to do this and we're going to do this. And, and, um, my, my wife, uh, thinks that, uh, if it required stubbornness that I was quite well suited to. Uh, to see all that through and 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 apply that, um, but I, I think it just you, you've got to lay out, you've got to understand there'll be resistance to change. Accept that you've got to lay out a plan, a change in culture, and then be stubborn about implementing it. And uh, after a while, get a few cultural successes under your belt, then people begin to believe, and that's one of the things that happened. Uh, at Worthen is we had a, a great 10-year run, really, uh, after after 85 when the, the, the problems uh, started. Uh, but it required um, laying out a plan, stubbornly implementing the plan, and uh, convincing people that change was good. Well, you and you were wildly <laughs> successful in this um, change that you implemented and the performance. Um, would you mind sharing a little bit about the, the results? Well, we, you know, the, the, there was tremendous losses right at, right at first. And we actually, uh, turned the losses around, uh, in about, it took about three or four years to turn the losses around into profits. And I, you know, I was not, um, overly concerned about the fact that it was taking three or four years. I know probably there were others, maybe shareholders that were concerned about that, but we had, we had a good 
bit of uh, credit losses to absorb. And uh, it took the earnings of the, uh, the cash flow of those three or four years we're making money, but, but then writing the loans off and, and net income then being zero. It took three or four years to absorb those losses through the earnings that we make. But I, I, the, the way I, uh, as you know, I'm a capitalist, and the way, the way I like to um, describe the success is the stock had been, the it was a publicly traded stock on the old American stock exchange. The stock had been in the 30s and 20s and 30s for a while, and, and then when the problems happened, it went to four, um, and there was a recapitalization uh, stock offering at around four. Um, and so uh, and so that was in 85. So then in, um, as we rebuilt uh, the earnings and, and the uh, expanded the bank, actually began to make acquisitions uh, in the uh, in the bank. Uh, as we did that, the stock went back up into the 20s. And then, um, and then uh, when the, the, the banking industry was in a consolidation at the time, big banks were buying small banks. And um, we, we uh, were approached by several of those banks. Uh, uh, and the one that actually won the uh, the, the, the flirting contest was uh, Boatman's Bank of uh, St. Louis, uh, St. Louis, and uh, that trade happened at um, 30, 33 or 35 maybe, uh, uh, so it was from 4 to 35 when that trade happened, and then in two years' time, the Nations Bank, North Carolina National, then Nations Bank, which had become Bank of America, bought Boatman's, and they they paid 50. In translating to old Worthen stock, they paid 55 for Boatman's, so the stock had gone from four to 55. And then if you held your Nations Bank Bank of America stock, it went it doubled from 55. So wow. basically, it was a four to a hundred sort of trip uh, if you held your uh, your Bank of America stock through to the end. What a what a journey that is! Congratulations, that's amazing. Now you've been Chief Operating Officer of Stevens since 1995, I believe. Uh, uh, that's right. Mm -hmm. And that's <clears throat> a long time—28 years—to be um, running uh, such. And of course, Stevens has changed so much over the years and grown so much um but you know and and for those listening i mean i think we all know stevens is involved in investment banking and um wealth management there's so many things that stevens does now research sales and trading public finance insurance private capital uh family office services and and of course it's a it's a global company now um, so you've seen a lot of change over the past 28 years and in your position as chief operating officer, I mean, it must just be a constant, constant, uh, battle to keep up with all of this growth and expansion. Well, we have a great team, 
uh, you know, the, the there is a, a tremendous organization here that that uh, manages all those different businesses. You mentioned at the outset uh, Jack and Warren, uh, and uh, what and 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 Wit Stevens, who was uh, Jack's brother. Um, uh, I've said before, if I've uh, been successful at all, it's because I've stood on the shoulders of those giants. Uh, they created a hell of a uh, of a base level company here, and of course, uh, uh, companies have uh, transitions and they have growth. And uh, there was a transition when Jack Stevens joined Wit after he got out after Jack got out of the Naval Academy. There was a transition when Warren became CEO of the company in 1989, uh, and and Warren has built. Uh, from 1989 to continue to build the base. Things were different for Jack. Uh, you know, Jack had one approach of looking at things and the, and the company was in, in, a, in, a, in a way in its infancy. And, and uh, when Jack came in and, and, and Jack expanded it from the bond business into a lot of other things and Warren continued that expansion. And soon uh, uh, Warren's kids already uh, work here, and uh, that I see that as sort of another transition. Um, but um, yeah, it's it's uh, under Warren's leadership since '89. It's grown tremendously. It's uh, it's diverse. Uh, it has a great reputation uh, in business everywhere um, of competence and integrity, and. Uh, so uh, and it has a great organization, and so we have great people working here, and and uh, it's a pleasure to work with them and uh, give them a challenge. They accept it and and accomplish it. Well, I remember <clears throat> several years ago, I'd already met you, but it was the first time I'd heard you lecture. Mm-hmm. And so, although for those listening, <clears throat> I mean, we all know you're a successful business person, but most listeners wouldn't know that you have a scholarly side to you uh, necessarily. And I know the first time we had, I think it may have been, it was the first time I saw you speak to our students. I think we had, we were in an auditorium that had about 300 students and um, you were talking about economics and, and capitalism. But I remember the thing that struck me and I don't remember the particular <clears throat> authors you read, but I believe it was Hayek and John Locke and Bastiat and some others. And you you pulled out books and you would read uh, a quote from the book or maybe your notes. And again, this is going back several years, um, but uh, you 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 made a, a an argument. Um, a lecture around capitalism and economics that I thought was absolutely phenomenal. Uh, but most business people that I have met, even if they're familiar with economics, wouldn't have experience reading some of these tremendous uh, authors. Well, of course, I started reading them. You mentioned I have a master's degree in economics from from University of Arkansas. I started reading those guys when I was there, uh, 
it's one of my favorite courses in getting my master's degree of history was history of economic thought taught by my old professor don market uh who's gone now but um what a great name for a econ yeah no I mean, and, and the interesting <laughs> thing about uh, dr market's uh philosophy is he was a market-oriented capitalist <laughs> and, and, and so uh but at any rate i i have thought a lot I, I have thought a lot over the years about the moral and ethical underpinning of capitalism, which I think uh, exists and which I think is substantial. I, I actually worked out in my own mind and heart um, that that premise uh, over the years, and I'm, I'm uh, obviously uh, disturbed now to see capitalism um under fire for being a heartless system for being for, for being uh, uh somehow now we've got over 50 percent of the students or young people in the country think it's a corrupt system or, or something like that and um the the fact of the matter i think is is that uh it is the most moral and ethical system of economic organization that that exists uh, because it's based on freedom because it's based on personal freedom and one of the myths about capitalism uh, and you know uh, Matt we've talked about this a lot but I one of the myths about capitalism I feel is that <clears throat> the myth is that it's about money and greed and wealth and it, and the the fact is it's not that's not what it's about it's about human achievement it is a system that permits, encourages human achievement with, with more direct um, uh, freedom to accomplish that than any other system that you can, that you can think of. So, so when you think about the moral and ethical framework, then you have to say which system provides the most autonomy for each individual to, to affect his or her own creativity and yes, to be rewarded for that, uh, and uh, and you know to 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 make money, and um, that all uh, that all has a way of uh, of working out, uh, in my opinion. And coercive systems um, uh, like socialism, uh, there's much more coercion involved. The state is uh, the boss. And um, my, I'm just distraught, really, at, at how what a great, tremendous misunderstanding there is of, of of the ethical underpinnings of capitalism as as we discuss it today, and and the and, and the myths that are promoted about it uh, in arguing for the for the for the opposite. But uh, you know, one of the things about capitalism that I think is it, it, people miss too is there's a referendum vote that goes on every day um, uh, in in the world in the in, in commerce, and that's the price system. So the price system is a referendum vote of everybody in the world making minute little decisions about what they want to do with their own the, the the product of their own human achievement, and that referendum vote uh, needs. To be permitted, uh, it 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 doesn't. You, you don't need to be coerced into what 
how you vote with with the fruits of your labor uh, in in a market system. The market needs to work, and so referendum votes are are the very description of freedom. Uh, personal autonomy, which is maximized under a capitalistic free enterprise system, is uh, the the very essence of freedom. Uh, what could be more uh, what could be more important? Uh, than personal autonomy. Uh, and so I just, you know, when I listen to the TV and I, I hear arguments uh, that, that are thinly disguised, socialistic arguments, communistic arguments, it just is it's just so disturbing. Because you, you, you know, it's like uh, in my, you know, and I know the other side feels the other way and I got it. But but it's like I think that this is the most moral and ethical system there is, and the other side thinks it's the most corrupt, and uh, that's where we are today. Uh, but whatever the case, uh, I, I tell my kids it's for them to work out um, uh, at my age, uh, and but but it's um, it, it's very disturbing because uh, I worked it out for myself in my own heart a long time ago. Yeah, I think you're right. A lot of people don't think through these ideas carefully, and they kind of go along with what sounds or feels good. Yeah, okay. yeah, and it's always you know one of the things one of the things about what sounds or feels good is that you know am I my brother's keeper? Do the other? Do I help the other? Well, of course, of course, there's nothing in the in the capitalistic free enterprise system that says you don't do that. I mean, Milton Friedman <clears throat> and uh, you know, one of the godfathers of capitalism, free markets and whatnot, said, of course, there's 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 charitable impulses in in people that seek to be uh, to achieve and, and be rewarded for their achievements. Of course, there is. And of course, there's room for a safety net. Of course, there is. Nobody says there isn't. Even Friedman said that. So uh, I, I think that um, we we I don't know. I don't know how to have that debate. Uh, in a in a more in a fairer framework than we're having it right now because I think both sides get distorted uh, tremendously. By the way, one of the <clears throat> one of the authors that, that that you'll recall that I quoted in those lectures that I gave um, uh, was uh, Emerson. Uh, Robert oh yes, Michael Emerson. And of course, he he wrote extensively about self-reliance. Um, title of his of book of his essays, and um, and I wish I wish it were required reading. Uh, I know, and it would suit me that if Karl Marx were required reading, um, you know, I think it should be. But but um, Emerson wrote about self reliance, and and it's one step. You know, he was in the mid 1800s, and and you know, um, you know the the. Uh, yes, people were living and writing about capitalism then, but it's certainly much much more developed economic system now than it was then. But he saw that what what was necessary for growth and for widespread prosperity for each person to be self-reliant and to be autonomous unto themselves. And um, and he 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 saw that and wrote about it early, and it was uh, as if he were writing about uh, in writing about self-reliance. He was writing about uh, 
a free market economy. On behalf of the Sam M. Walton College of Business, I want to thank everyone for spending time with us for another engaging conversation. You can subscribe by going to your favorite podcast service and searching Be Epic, B-E-E-P-I-C. 